in the deep end and I'm going to go out and I'm going to, I'm going to learn some stuff. I'm going to see some things that a little fella from Murrundi may have never seen before. So I started hitchhiking around Australia. Uh, I literally quit my job, left my girlfriend after that day and said, you know what, I'm going I'm hitchhiking around Australia. Walked down the main street of Scone. Uh, another, great, another great place. Uh, and, and started travelling. And then my, my journey eventually took me to Tasmania, which was probably about two months after, uh, after I started, by which point my, uh, my meagre savings had totally evaporated uh, and I was sleeping on the outskirts of uh, town in a swag and, and, and just subsi- um, subsisting on rice cooked in a billy. Uh, and I think I was bemoaning the fact to someone about how hard my life was, uh, you know, with no money and no food and no shelter. And uh, they said, why don't you join the woofing organisation? I was like, woofing organisation? <laughs> sounds interesting, go on. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, it uh, stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms, and it's an international volunteer organisation. And the premise is, uh, as a volunteer, you do four hours' work in exchange for food and accommodation, which, as a hungry 21-year-old, I thought, I'm going to eat these guys out of house and home. <laughs> I'm going to do, like, between, like... 10, 2, have a bit of a sleep in, eat some breakfast, wake up, do four hours work, eat, 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 knock off at 2, eat, 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 eat. Uh, so I joined up. And, uh, and you get a little book. Is anyone here a member, a host? Have they woofed? Oh, oh. I've also, oh, I'm also an ambassador. I just made that up. I'm not an ambassador for woofing, but I should be. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It is the best way to travel because you're not a voyeur. You are living with people who are genuine members of community. So the cultural exchange and experience is phenomenal. Uh, so anyway, I joined up and it costs 50 bucks for a year. And it's just to cover you in case you lose an eyeball while on someone's farm. That was the number one thing that apparently was insured for. You get a, I think I got $5,000 if I lost an eyeball. So that was, <laughs> as a poor person at the time, it actually did cross my mind. How, what is an eyeball worth to me? <laughs> to, I mean, a patch could be pretty cool. Uh, depth perception, I'm probably overrated. Uh, so anyway, I joined up and I got I'm finally getting to the point. <laughs> finally. In your own time. <clears throat> and uh, so I had a, a flick through, <coughs> excuse me, the local area, and I found a, a farm that sounded right up my alley. It was an old, uh, uh, well, I didn't know he was old at the time, but his name was Gilles, uh, and he, he had a farm, and he was looking for woofers, so I called him up, and uh, he picked me up, and we arrived at his farm at like 8 o'clock at night, and it was in a place literally called Paradise. Uh, it's on a map. It's just outside Sheffield. You can see it. Uh, it's right on the foothills of Mount Rowland there, very beautiful part of the country. Uh, and he said, look, Paul, but I'm not going to do a French accent, just in case there's any French people here who I will insult. Uh, uh, he said, look, you look a bit rough, mate. So go to bed. Uh, here's a cup of tea. Go to bed. I'll get you in the morning. Uh, and then we'll start then. So you just have a shower and take it easy tonight. And so <clears throat> next morning, five o'clock, five o'clock, five a.m., just, just to clarify, so far my woofing dream isn't going exactly <laughs> according to plan. Uh, Paul! I told you I wouldn't do the accent. <laughs> I couldn't help it after the end. Uh, <clears throat> time to get up. <laughs> uh, so it was, uh, it was March, no, April, April. And um, it was, you know, pre-dawn. 
Uh, and he said, you know, on the way up to the house, uh, collect some fruit from the orchard and we'll, you know, we'll poach it and juice it for breakfast and come up and eat and then we'll get into the working day. Woofing, oh, worst idea ever. <laughs> Five o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> uh, so anyway, I go out into this. I was in a little sleep out, and I go out, and it's this, you know, magnificent scene of you know, pre-dawn mist. All the trees are kind of silhouettes of varying distance, just disappearing into and out of the mist. Uh, and he had this wonderful uh, poem fruit orchard, which at that time of year was, of course, laden with fruit. Um, so I made a little, uh, you know, a little bundle with my jumper, like this, a little basket, and I started picking some apples and pears off it, you know, and they're covered in dew, and they're cold and crispy, and uh, I realised at that point that as a 21-year-old person, I had never picked fruit off a tree, ever, in my life, uh, which I kind of got a little bit depressed about for about half a second until I realised I was actually picking fruit right then, uh, and it was most likely going to be delicious. So I took a bite of the, you know... I took a bite of the apple, very biblical. Uh, Temptation got the better of me. Uh, And, you know, words can't describe. Uh, It was was just probably the singular most amazing thing I've ever eaten in my life to this day. And I've eaten mutton birds, so... You wouldn't be laughing if you didn't. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't really until I wrote the book um, and had to really look at what brought me here in, in retrospect until I realised how much of a pivotal moment that was. I certainly had no understanding of the gravity of it at that moment. Uh, I was like, oh, that's nice, <laughs> up to the house. And, uh, and when I stayed with this guy for a month and... Uh, I come to learn that he, he, like, he kind of was the, uh, the personification of Old MacDonald. It was one of those little storybook farms of like 20 acres and he had chickens and cows and pigs and goats and geese and orchards and veggie gardens and all the work that we did uh, basically revolved around growing food for he, himself and his family and by extension me. Uh, and he'd grown up in the south of France in, in Provence and uh, he was in his 60s at this stage and basically... He was trying to recreate that, that, that small farm market culture that, that he'd grown up with in the south of France and doing a bloody good job of it. Uh, people would, people would, all his neighbours constantly came around to barter and swap and share meals and drink wine. And, and as a 21-year-old person with no degree, no trade, uh, no real direction, at that age, you, you're quite open to inspiration and, uh, and when I stayed with Gilles, I, I, I found like, I felt like I'd found the magic bullet for the meaning of life. I was like, oh my God, it's hiding here in paradise in Tasmania. People have requested for centuries to find the meaning of life. And here he is, right here, like working in a way that, that, that you can see tangible results for every day and that aren't just tangible results, they're deliciously tangible results. You know, all the work that we did, every meal uh, that we cooked three times a day had some component from that farm uh, or was traded off with a neighbour. And I just, I'd never witnessed such a connected way of life. I grew up, like I said, in the Hunter Valley where farmers were, were angry old you know, men in their 70s with rusty land cruisers. That was, and, and even angrier dogs. 
Uh, that to me is what a farmer was, a beef grazier, you know, that didn't want, you know, because I grew up in, in, in the shop and we had lots of farmers come in and they were, you know, they just grunted at me as a child, hardly the stuff to kind of go, that's what I want to do, that's the connectivity I want. But then to go and, and, and experience what Jill's offered, and I just, it was one of those things where you just go, that's, that's it, that's the, that's the secret, that's the key, that's what I want to do, I want to, I want to do this, I want to grow food and I want to enjoy my family and I want to be a part of a community and I want to be in bloody good health and drink lots of wine. So that, <laughs> that passion for food then took you to the kitchen of Butemont? In a, in a very roundabout way, yeah, yeah it did. Uh, but the reality Which is kind wasn't... of like the antithesis of, yeah. of, of that. Uh, so I, the, the realisation that I had in Tasmania was that I want to do this, but uh, then the reality of it was that mm, I've got none of the skills. Uh, can't cook, uh, can't grow. So I, I continued woofing for a while and, and did a lot of work in community gardens for another two years to get a, uh, a handle on growing. And I felt like I was, you know, could plant things and grow them and, and, and have harvests. I was pretty confident with that. Still could not cook to save myself. Uh, and doing community garden work and permaculture work, a lot of which is volunteer, doesn't pay very well. So I, I took up a job as a chef's apprentice working for one of my mates in Newcastle. And... Uh, after about a year and a half, I was kind of I decided I wanted to make a proper go of this. Uh, if I'm going to do my apprenticeship, I want to do it in the best possible restaurant I can get admitted to. Uh, I didn't want to work in Sydney, so I uh, I, I this is pre-internet, uh, everything being available on the internet. I actually called the Age and uh, and said, "Can you guys send me a copy of the the Age Good Food Guide?" Uh, because we only get the Sydney Morning Herald Good Food Guide here in New South Wales. And they did. They obliged. Very nice. Very friendly. Uh, and so I thought, OK, I'm going to start at the top and work my way back. Best restaurant in Melbourne at the time was Food Mon, Three Hats. Uh, and so I started with them and I, and I, I sent them a, 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 an email and, uh, and said, guys, you know, oh, I'm sure you get, you know, wannabe apprentices. You get thousands of emails like this a day, but please... Please, I'm different. Can I please have the opportunity to come and at least just do a trial in your beautiful, vaunted halls? Uh, and what I didn't realise at the time, of course, was restaurants like that are always looking for fresh flesh for the fire. And so they got this email, and they're like, yes, oh, of course, come down for a trial, yes. Uh, and so they, yeah, they got back rather promptly and said, yeah, we'd love you to come down for an opportunity. So I, uh, you know, I flew down on my days off from my job in Newcastle, uh, did my first ever 16-hour day, uh, which was great. I uh, was not really expecting that. And I uh, had gone from, from kind of working on a, you know, as if it was like a, a nice cafe in Monica, somewhere like that, kind of like a breakfast, lunch, dinner, seven-day-a-week kind of place on a nice little dining strip, quite friendly, you know, a couple of busy services a week, and then went down to this, and this is like the first time I'd ever even stepped foot in like a serious restaurant. Like, they don't do... We don't do breakfasts. This is 100% top-of-its-game fine dining. And, you know, going from a crew of about four chefs... And a couple of dishes, you know, all of whom were pretty casual, to walking into a, a restaurant on Tuesday morning, which for fine dining restaurants is the busiest day because they're shut Sunday, Monday usually. So Tuesday, you're basically prepping the whole menu from scratch. 30 chefs, head down. <laughs> Nothing's like, it's just silence and pans and, and just a general tension in the air. And automatically, I could just 
stressed like this. And they took me upstairs to get changed for the trial. And I remember standing there and going, nah, <laughs> nah, I should just sneak out the back door now and, uh, and get out while the getting's good. But stupid me, got changed, went down. And, uh, and two years later, I got spat out the other side. Uh, and when you work in a place like that, because there, I mean, there's 90-hour weeks uh, every week without fail, fully booked breakfast, uh, sorry, lunch and dinner services, the real kind of rock and roll of the culinary world, but decidedly lacking in glamour. You know, it's, uh, you know we kind of glorify those restaurants, but to be uh, a line cook in one of them is like working three factory jobs at the same time. Uh, with zero protection and zero wage protection, no industry power. It's, it's really just a culture of abuse. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, the people who do it and stick at it, that you kind of get this like sadistic, uh, you know, club of people where you're like, if you can't handle it, then just beat it. There's the door. If you don't want to be here, there's plenty of other people that do. And so you kind of get sucked up into this macho boys club of like, yeah, 16-hour days, yeah, another one, yeah, I haven't seen sunlight for a month, yeah, this is great. Uh, yeah, I'm getting paid two bucks now, woo. Uh, and, you know, and you, because, you know, it's, it's quite, um, uh, it's quite uh, there's a lot of glory to it on the surface, you know. There's Dom Perignon and there's models and actresses and actors and politicians and stuff dining there and you're dealing with the best produce on the planet. But I remember after being there for about a year and a half, I'm a bit slow on the uptake, uh, I went, hmm, I don't think this is for me. Uh, because I, it was at three o'clock in the afternoon, because that, that job you run solely on adrenaline. It sounds like a little bit cliched maybe, but it's, I'd, I'd imagine there's some serious scientific proof uh, there if there was to be a study because, uh, you know, it's, it's so intense. And so there's always a lull at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You're still in the kitchen, but you've just finished lunch service uh, and you're starting to get ready for dinner service, which starts at 5.30. And so at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, all your adrenaline's kaput and, you know, and you starting to feel the fact that you sleep three hours a night and work for 90 hours a week and you kind of go into this like weird psychedelic state which I could somewhat recommend but it's quite hard to get to there's probably cheaper means to get to that uh, you know spirit animal state than by working in a fine dining restaurant uh, <clears throat> and just remember being there one day and and thinking back to that farm with Gilles and, uh, and going this is the absolute antithesis of why I started to cook. Uh, you know, I'd cook probably about 250 meals a day, every day. I wouldn't see one person that I cooked for. I wouldn't sit down to enjoy a meal myself. I didn't eat at all. Uh, I, didn't, I wasn't outside. Uh, I didn't have any family or friends around me. The only people I saw were this kind of like band of, you know, of um, kind of masterless samurai uh, that, you know, were just, had questionable people abilities, uh, but hearts of gold. Uh, so uh, I had to leave from there, from there on in, you know, because I kind of finally saw through that culture that I'd been washed up in uh, or caught up in, and, and it, it was just so far removed from everything that food can be. 
which is this amazing tool for connecting us to the environment and to our communities and to our families and to ourselves. It's, it's really one of the most holistic things that we can engage in. Uh, but, and when you're working at one of the best restaurants in the country, like, there's a lot of attention about the food that's coming out of these places and you think that that's the epicentre of it. But the irony for me was that it was, it was, it was totally removed from food as I understood it. We're going to find out what happened next. Oh, after yes. Stay tuned. Because we're averaging approximately eight minutes a question at the moment. <laughs> and I can see the, the catering staff waiting anxiously out in the wings. So Should I, I, should I let everyone know Paul, what we're having? Yes, please. So we are, we're having a rabbit riette with some lovely crusty white bread. So, uh, so slow cooked and, 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 and flaked with fat and served with mustard and maybe cornichons, I'm not sure. Some cor- anyway, anyway, mustard and crusty bread in the rear. If there wasn't some cornichons, then next time try it with cornichons. <laughs> uh, and, as well as a, uh, a pea and broad bean tart, of course, because we're in winter, we're in the time of the legume, but that's a lovely sweet meal. So, We'll see you after. Enjoy. Enjoy.